when candidates go on TV and they talk about slapping taxes on China, what they're really talking about is t- making Americans pay more for goods and services, uh, typically for things that Americans need. The most often things that get protected uh, uh, in our, through protectionist tariffs are food, clothing, uh, shelter, things like lumber. Um, and those, and then of course, you know, a lot of the other stuff is uh, inputs and capital goods used by American manufacturers. So what you're really talking about is forcing Americans to pay more for less so that they can indirectly subsidize through higher prices other American companies and other American companies that viciously lobbied for that protection. That voice you just heard there was that of Scott Lincecombe. He is an international trade attorney, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, does some writing for The Federalist. You can read his writings there at thefederalist.com. And he is our guest today on Radio Free Acton. Welcome to the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, pleased once again to be your host here on Radio Free Acton. And uh, before we get to our interview, a couple events coming up uh, that I want to highlight here uh, so that we can hopefully get you folks down here to the Acton Institute, either to our building or to our big conference this summer. First of all, coming up very quickly, March 30th, we have our Acton Lecture Series for 2017 continuing, and it's going to be a great lecture. John Stone Street is going to be here. If you don't know who John Stone Street is, he serves as president right now of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He is a very gifted communicator, a great speaker, and he's going to be here at Acton speaking on the topic of The Image Restored, The Gospel in a Culture of Identity Crisis. Going to be a very, very good lecture, I guarantee it. It's going to be happening on March 30th right here at our Acton Building's Mark Murray Auditorium. You can register online uh, to join us for that lecture at acton.org slash events. Uh, Just click on the lecture series uh, item for The Image Restored, The Gospel in a Culture of Identity Crisis, and sign up. March 30 at noon right here at the Acton Institute. Additionally, it is that time of year here at the Acton Institute where we start to look forward to Acton University. That will be taking place this year, June 20th through the 23rd, a Wednesday through a Friday evening once again here at Grand Rapids, Michigan's beautiful conference center, DeVos Place. We take it over for the better part of a week, bring in about a thousand people from around the world, bring in an incredible faculty of, of, of scholars and intellectuals, businessmen and religious leaders from all over and from all different traditions. And we have a, a great conference exploring the foundations the intellectual and moral foundations of the free society. That's what we do here at the Acton Institute. We want to build a free and virtuous society, and Acton University is one of the main ways that we uh, go about that task. Uh, If you're interested in finding out more about Acton University, I'd encourage you to head over to the AU website, university.acton.org. All the information on the conference is there. The conference schedule is already posted, so you can see the course listings. Uh, The faculty is posted there as well. You can see who's coming in to teach. And uh, you can get any information you need about the price of the conference, uh, financial aid, lodging, anything that you need to, uh, to get down here to Grand Rapids to be with us for Acton University, uh, you can find right there at university.acton.org. So please check it out, register today, and, and join us in June, June 20th through 23rd for Acton University. It's going to be a great conference again this year. With that said, it is time to get to our interview. We're going to talk trade today on Radio Free Acton with international trade attorney, Scott Lincecum, 
Without further ado, let's get to the interview here on the podcast of the Acton Institute, Radio Free Acton. I am pleased to be joined today by uh, international trade lawyer and uh, Cato Institute adjunct scholar, uh, Scott Lincecum. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, it's it's been good to have you here. And uh, you are, being an international trade lawyer, let's just dive right into the meat <laughs> of things. Right. Uh, there is, uh, it's, it's 2017 in America. Obviously, we just went through uh, what uh, many would describe as a miserable, uh, disgusting, traumatic presidential election. Uh, and free trade took a lot of hits in the presidential election. Sure did. Uh, so there seems to be a prevalent view in a lot of a lot of corners of the country right now that free trade, that international trade in general, is the enemy. Right. It uh, it it sucks away money from the middle class and the poor. It uh, sucks jobs to uh, who knows what corner of the globe, never to return to the United States, and we're left sort of destitute and broken. Uh, address that. <laughs> well, <laughs> is that simple enough? Yeah. So um, there's, oh gosh, where to even begin with the problems? I mean, you know, the, the first problem uh, is that it's just simply not true objectively. Um, so, you know, if you look, for example, that at outsourcing, what you find is that uh, the United States actually has a massive foreign investment surplus in manufacturing, meaning that foreigners invest about $50 billion more in the United States than we invest abroad. So uh, you also see that American multinationals still spend three times as much at home as they do abroad. Um, You also see that only about 8% of goods and services that American companies make abroad, make overseas, come back to the United States. So, I mean, I could do this all day. The the point is that you, you literally... When you look at the facts, it's not there. But um, beyond the facts, and this is you know what I I keep trying to hammer home um, when I when I give talks and um, when I write, is that it's not just a factual issue. Um, there's really a, a, a moral and logical element to free trade, and it's something that you don't hear a lot about. You know, when candidates go on TV and they talk about slapping taxes on China, what they're really talking about is making Americans pay more for goods and services, Uh, typically for things that Americans need. The most often things that get protected uh, uh, through protectionist tariffs are food, clothing, uh, shelter, things like lumber. Um, And those, and then of course, you know, a lot of the other stuff is uh, inputs and capital goods used by American manufacturers. So, what what you what you're really talking about is forcing Americans to pay more for less so that they can indirectly subsidize through higher prices other American companies and other American companies that viciously lobbied for that protection so you know if you in any other context this type of stuff gets run out of town you know donald trump talks about draining the swamp and you hear about all this cronyism people don't like solyndra and the rest but yet when trade comes up our politicians literally brag about how they are going to redistribute our wealth to protected American manufacturers. It's, it's probably the one area of our politics where uh, draining the swamp is is actually actively opposed. Right, where you we, we support the the cronyism. Exactly. We like this stuff exactly. And you know, you look 
at the folks that are going into the Trump administration's uh, trade policy team, whether it be the Department of Commerce or the United States Trade Representative, and all these folks were either lobbyists or lawyers for uh, U.S. Steel or other companies that are very common lobbying groups for protectionism. So, you know, this whole idea that protectionism is for the little guy and that it's this kind of, you know, philosophically pure policy is, is nonsense. I mean, when you when you get to the nuts and bolts of it, when you do what I do for a living, you see it on a daily basis. I mean, the fact is that a company files a petition to the U.S. government to for them to start intervening in Americans' uh, transactions. And, you know, as I say a lot. You know, people recoil at the idea of government inserting itself between us and our doctors, but they beg for it uh, when it comes to us and our merchants. Makes no sense. Now, now the Acton Institute is, uh, and I, I thank God for this all the time, we are not a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. We're here in West Michigan. And Michigan, if, if you're unfamiliar with the state of Michigan, we are the home of the auto industry. Right. We are the home of the United Auto Workers. We, we are a very blue-collar uh, and have always really thought of ourselves. I think there's a there's a self-image in Michigan that we're just kind of a blue-collar manufacturing state. Right. We like to build things. Uh, Henry Ford is from here, you know. Uh, the, so so it's it's natural for me as a citizen of Michigan over the past 20, 30 years to have heard a lot of laments about manufacturing in America right. and how the manufacturing jobs are all gone. And indeed, a, a, a mile north of my house, a gigantic GM stamping plant is now a big flat lot that they're trying to redevelop. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. I, I guess the question that I have is, number one, are the laments about manufacturing leaving America entirely true, <laughs> entirely false or somewhere in between? And number two, the the real question is, is there a problem on the lower end of the scale for our less educated workers? Uh, Is there a lack of jobs for that sort of person in America? Right. So um, let's start with manufacturing in general. So the idea that American manufacturing has been destroyed is is patently false. Um, The fact is that American manufacturing output, so the amount of stuff we make, is about at an all-time high. Uh, we make over $2 trillion worth of manufacturing value add every year. Uh, we're still the world's second largest manufacturer with about 18% of total global output. So almost one-fifth of the total output on the planet uh, in terms of manufacturing is made in the United States. But there is a nugget of truth, and that is that we've lost a ton of manufacturing jobs. The fact is, though, that we've been losing manufacturing jobs for uh going on 70 years now. Um, As a percentage of the workforce, American manufacturing jobs peaked uh, in the late 1940s. Um, In total sheer numbers, American manufacturing jobs peaked in the 1970s, 1979. So the idea that, um, you know, that was before NAFTA, uh, before China entered the WTO, before all that good stuff. So the idea that, you know, trade has been the primary driver of those job losses is just false. I mean, the fact is that those jobs have been lost mainly to automation and productivity gains. Um, we're just able to make more with less. And uh, trade is a, a secondary or even tertiary driver. You know, look, some there's no doubt that some jobs have been lost to trade uh, to international competition. And look, they call it creative destruction for a reason, right? Sure. There is there is sure. destruction. Yes. In that. Yes. Um, but it's it's dramatically oversold, and I think the reason for that is that it's an easy scapegoat. If you are a politician 
or a union boss or a CEO and you've made some bad business or policy decisions over the years, um, you've layered tax after tax on companies or new onerous regulations, or you just made really stupid contracts, it's really easy to blame your failure on Mexico or China or or NAFTA. It's a very, it's a tangible thing you can blame, whereas it's very difficult to either blame your own mistakes or to blame robots. So you see trade get a lot of the blame. Now on your last point, um, you know, there's, there's no shortage of low skill jobs out there. Uh, the problem is the willingness of those displaced workers to take those jobs. Um, and, and the reason for that, there's a couple things. I mean, one, look, there, no one is saying it's easy for someone who's in his 50s and has worked at a GM stamping plant his whole life to, to change gears and move into a, a new job. Sure. That's gonna be that's gonna be tough. Uh, well, obviously, a career change under good circumstances is often a stressful thing, and, exactly. and this is this is a, a forced exactly. thing essentially in life. Exactly. Um, so there's no doubt that it's difficult, but it's made a lot more difficult. First of all, just simply by uh, a lack of mobility. So people are these days more unwilling or unable to move. So there could be a stamping plant job in another state. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of automotive production now moved into the into the South. Where Very I much live. so, yes. So there's an unwillingness or an inability to move, um, and or there's simply an unwillingness to 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 take on the new skills. You know, they talk about this kind of pink collar jobs. So these are jobs that require kind of soft skills. These are all uh, wonky uh, uh, buzzwords, but sure. the fact is basically these are things that require kind of nurturing personality or you know uh, you know like healthcare worker being a very yeah, yeah. good example. Obviously, yeah. So so the other thing is that that uh, that 50 year old GM stamping guy. Uh, is either unwilling or unable to take on those new skills to get uh, a job uh, uh, that that would pay close to the same wage, not require you know a, a JD or an MBA or anything like that, um, and so that that creates problems. Now, I think beyond those things, uh, I think our government does a really bad job in terms of encouraging. Uh, labor dynamism. That is something that you never hear about the government, too. Right. It never does a very bad job. I, <laughs> right, I'm, right. I'm shocked. Yeah, well, and, you know, you look through our our tax code, um, you look through our at our labor policies, and um, there are so many areas in which government actually makes it harder for you either to save your money in case disaster ever strikes, for you to get training before disaster strikes, or after the worst happens for you to, to move on into a new job, you know, whether it be occupational licensing or uh, really stupid tax provisions. My, my favorite provision that I bring up a lot is, you know, that you can get a tax deduction for training in your current job, but you can't get a tax deduction for training for a new job. So if you are, say you're a textile worker and you're 50 and you can see the writing on the wall, Okay, American textile jobs are not the future of American manufacturing. And maybe you want to go get certified uh, for some sort of new manufacturing um, uh, process or whatever at a high tech plant that makes, I don't know, satellites. And you can't actually get a tax deduction for that, but you can get a tax deduction for doing textile training. 
So, I mean, that's insane, right? And, yeah, I'm and, gonna, I, I need a crowbar to remove my palm from my forehead. Right. I, that's, that's incredibly stupid. Right. So there are all of these policies out there that make it even harder to adjust and that, that thwart what we call labor dynamism, this beneficial job churn. So, you know, trade does, again, cause some displacement. Most of it's caused by automation. The best thing that our policymakers can do is just how they shouldn't stop robots. They shouldn't stop trade. Instead, they should help uh, labor market, help workers adjust better, um, help them save for uh, a new job or take new risks or tr- save for training in a new profession that kind of stuff you just don't do I, i'm gonna i'm gonna serve up another really nice softball for you here because this is this is one thing i want i want to give you a crack at here what about the trade deficit <laughs> it's terrible that we have this trade deficit right. where, where, where we're sending you know, we're importing so much more than we're sending out right. that's got to be bad for america right wrong oh yeah so I, I'm, I'm stunned i know and you should be stunned because the reporting on our trade deficit is is routinely awful um i i admit that when i first started at cato in the late 90s i remember distinctly the first time i ever uh, i was an intern and i remember hearing a lecture on the trade deficit and this giant light bulb went off that i had never before heard that the trade deficit wasn't a per se bad thing. And this is the first time. So when you actually get into the weeds and when you talk to economists, uh, the fact is the trade deficit is neither good nor bad. Really, the trade deficit simply is. It's simply ex- exports minus imports. Sure. That's it. And that actually reflects not really trade policy, but actually underlying uh, larger macroeconomic issues. Mainly, it reflects uh, savings and investment. So we, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever, consume more than we save. Well, we're going to have to make up for that consumption uh, by imports. Um, now, the other thing that's not mentioned, so so first of all, trade deficit isn't really about trade policy. It's about, again, savings and investment. Second thing is that no one ever talks about that our trade deficit is ma- matched almost dollar for dollar. Um, just but for some statistical discrepancies, with a foreign investment surplus. That means that if we have a $500 billion trade deficit in goods and services, we have a $500 billion foreign investment surplus, meaning more money from overseas is coming to the United States. Now, that's an economic truism. Every dollar sent abroad eventually comes back to the United States. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Again, I mentioned we have a, a lot more foreign investment here than we invest abroad. Um, and amazingly, um, we actually, uh, our foreign investors actually are willing to take lower returns because the U.S. economy is so stable. We are kind of this last resort investment destination. So we're really, because of that and because of the, of the U.S. dollar being kind of a global reserve currency, um, we're always going to have a trade deficit of some amount. And it's not a bad thing. In fact, the trade deficit tends to match economic growth. Now, what that means is that as our trade deficit gets bigger, the U.S. economy uh, is ex- growth is accelerating. Um, as the trade deficit gets smaller, like it did during the Ra- Great Dis- Recession, well, guess what? That Actually, the economy is shrinking. So um, that doesn't mean that one causes the other. 
Uh, it simply is the fact that it, there's a, a very strong correlation between the two because basically as the economy booms, we consume more. We're going to consume imports in the process. As we're, as we're talking about this, the, the, the obvious thing that's happened in America is there's been a real sh- – it, it may not be huge, but there's a shift going on in views of the free market. And uh, you said you started at Cato in, in the mid-90s, did you say? Uh, late 90s. Yeah. Late 90s, yeah. The, so you're talking about the Bill Clinton era there. Bill Clinton, of course, a, a Democratic president, passed NAFTA. And you mentioned uh, in, in your lecture just a little bit ago, there 100 Democrats voted for that in, right. in the Congress. Now, today, that probably would not – well, probably. That would not happen. Right. What is it – for the Democrats in particular, the Republicans obviously are moving in this direction too, but the Democrats have gone from a relatively trade-friendly party to being very anti-trade. Right. What are the elements that have pulled that party to the left in that interceding time? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is simply classic domestic constituent politics, and meaning uh, labor unions became increasingly anti-trade in the 90s and in the 2000s. And uh, at the same time, so that's a big Democratic constituency. Uh, At the same time, George W. Bush was becoming uh, pro-free trade. He was passing, you know, he was uh, entering into a lot of free trade agreement negotiations, um, you know, with like, uh, excuse me, with Colombia and Panama and Korea and a lot of others. And so it was classic, just partisan politics as well. So I think the Democratic Party really just saw, A, they can uh, please their domestic, their, their base uh, of labor unions and environmentalists that are generally anti-trade. And they can act as a foil to to George W. Bush. Um, and they can play off that, you know, oppose that as well. Um, now, Obama started out along that line, started out in the same anti-trade mold as, as uh, members of Congress, um, and then softened in, in his last few years. The problem, though, is that his trade conversion came far too late. Um, you know, he spent his first term sitting on uh, trade agreements that, that George W. Bush had signed, just sitting on them. They never moved until uh, late uh, in his first term. Uh, he kind of slow walked the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, resulting in it not getting done on his watch. Um, and then, of course, now Donald Trump has walked away from that. Even Hillary Clinton walked away right. from that. Everybody did. Everybody yes, did. It was radioactive. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and he really was never a vocal advocate for trade. And you need that from a president because the president is, in a, is uniquely positioned to really have uh, the national interest at, at heart. So because he represents the whole nation— and trade generally, you know, benefits the whole nation while imposing discrete, uh, narrow costs. Um, it's it's easier and more expected for the for the president to be really the most free trade guy in in the whole government. Um, and so, because Obama kind of sat on his hands for so much of his his terms, uh, and in fact openly campaigned against NAFTA and against outsourcing and all these things, uh, it really put us in a in a, a rough spot in terms of trying to climb out of this hole um, with respect to kind of the the frayed free trade consensus. It's it's kind of a vicious cir- cycle, too, because, of course, as as our economy contracts, because we're, we're being more hostile to trade, more people on the on the margins of society are losing their jobs right. and the growing. And look, the 2016 elections, there was a lot of 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 pent up anger. That a lot of people in the in on the coasts did not see, but right. a lot of the man, you know the people who used to work the manufacturing jobs used to work in the mining towns. It, it, there's been a lot of talk about how those people flocked to Trump, uh, and, now, and now we have President Trump. Now it, Trump is sort of a, a wild card, right? 
uh, he is he is uh, not a man who is uh, governed by the traditional, uh, you know, the, the traditional uh, margins that a Republican president would operate within. And so there's a lot of questions about what does this mean? Uh, and and in, in some respects, uh, I, I hope that Trump acts as uh, I, I've described him as chemotherapy, you know, a, a poison that you can inject into the system that right. kills off some of the bad stuff and then right. you survive. Yeah. Is Trump better than Obama was? No. Well, on trade, no. Um, so, you know, Obama, even for, for all of the criticism I just I just gave Obama, he was still not overtly hostile to our trading partners and to our trade agreements uh, once he got into office. I mean, once he got into office, he kind of turned the corner and kind of was kind of a squish for for his first term, uh, you know, campaigned against outsourcing in his second term. But but really, overall, uh, was was OK. Uh, Trump, I mean, you know, I just saw a rally yesterday. He was doing the same type of kind of protectionist demagoguery. So, and he has hired, uh, you know, a bunch of folks who, uh, you know, they're not, they're not radical protectionists, but at the same time, these are guys that, that have a lot of practice using our laws to provide protection for uh, various clients uh, and domestic industries and workers. So, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to, I think at the very least, we're going to see more of that type of action. What, what do you think is the best case scenario for the Trump administration? <laughs> so best case on trade, I think, is a, a an uptick in what we call trade remedies cases, these anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases that are fair trade cases. They're pretty discreet. They cover a small product and a couple or a small band of products and a uh, one or two or three countries, not not everybody. Uh, so I think you, you see a marked uptick in that. You might see uh, more WTO disputes, which is fine. Um, and you might see a little bit of uh, dusting off some older trade laws, um, safeguards, for example, or uh, a, a policy we call Section 301, which is a reciprocal kind of retaliatory uh, trade law. Uh, but avoiding the really big skirmishes um, and avoiding, uh, you know, for example, ripping up NAFTA or withdrawing from the WTO or slapping 35% tariffs on on everything from China, that kind of stuff. So I think I think the best case scenario we see just an uptick in these little these little discrete cases, um, but no really um, dramatic shift towards, you know, really broad-based protectionism. Do you think there's enough of a free trade supporting contingent in the Congress to moderate yeah. Trump? Yeah. So that the, the good news, well, there's good news and bad news there. The good news is that, yes, Congress has already, uh, you know, Paul Ryan and others have already said, look, they're not, they're not down with tariffs. And uh, the Constitution uh places expressly places authority to regulate international commerce with Congress. Now, the bad news is that Congress over about 80 years has delegated substantial amount of authority to the president to uh, to intervene in in foreign trade, um, whether it be through, again, you know, trade remedies or some other kind of uh, dusty old provisions of U.S. law. So I do think that Congress will act as a stop. But I think the biggest stop uh, will be the market. So, you know, I think that the market is right now has priced in uh, a Trump economy that is not hostile towards trade. Uh, you know, I think and for some sort of dramatic shift in that regard, cause the market to tank and no president wants the market to tank. Yes, that's true. So I think that's going to be probably the most practical check on on Trump's uh 
decision-making will be merely that. Uh, as well as I think once you get into the office, you realize kind of the gravity of the situation. Uh, and uh, there's the potential for litigation, you know, similar to the executive order on, on immigration um, uh, that, that ran into so much trouble. You know, similar types of unilateralism like that could end up with a lot of court cases as well. It's good for the lawyers, um, not good for the economy. Yeah, as as Trump has gotten into office, I mean, I, I think everybody was a little jittery about what in the world is this going to mean. But even even over the last, he's been in office roughly two months now, and it it seems that he has sort of, in some areas, moderated his rhetoric, and and he's he's being a little bit more quote unquote presidential in some yeah. ways. And so hopefully we'll continue to see that sort of a, a, a transformation of Donald Trump. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, I, I've been talking with Scott Lincecum, uh, international trade attorney, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Uh, you've got articles on thefederalist.com, one of our favorite publications here at uh, Radio Free Act. And Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks Appreciate for Appreciate it. And so another edition of Radio Free Act in, comes to a close. And I want to thank, uh, once again, Scott Lincecum. Great uh, great time talking to you today, Scott. Uh, Scott, again, international trade attorney, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can find his writings there at cato.org, and you can also find his writing at uh, The Federalist, one of our favorite publications here at Radio Free Act, and that's at thefederalist.com. Thanks again, Scott, for being with us, and thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to Radio Free Act, then check the link. Uh, with this podcast, and you'll be able to go right to iTunes, subscribe there. We're working on getting on Google Play as well. And uh, we hope that you will subscribe and listen uh, to every edition of Radio Free Actin. And of course, uh, if there's anyone that you know who hasn't heard of Actin, maybe hasn't heard of Radio Free Actin, pass that link around and uh, spread the news because we want to build a free and virtuous society. And the way we do that is by talking to people. Uh, the more people, the better. And uh, we appreciate having your ear for a few minutes today over the internet. Once again, my name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been a pleasure to be with you today on Radio Free Act, and we will talk to you on future editions. Have a good day, everybody.